All right, you ready for this? Ready. sir doing well tom doing well how you doing man uh, we are back it's good to be back in the podcast back. saddle after having last week off it was a great week saw my oldest boy graduate pretty cool experience yeah congrats congrats to him my gosh time just flies by it's unbelievable there are these these moments in parenthood where you kind of it happens and then like like one of those good movies where everything connects at the end like oh that's why that then that 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 all these things that kind of tie together i kind of had that sense like just seeing him complete this milestone it just brought you back to all the things you helped oh them work with and overcome and you're like oh it it, it worked like it, it came together so very fantastic uh, unique moment of parenthood because apparently because there's not a lot of opportunities as you know to really assess and to say like whoo and take a deep breath right? it's just yeah. kind of a constant spinning like okay we got this one we got this one done let's go on to the next crisis exactly so, it's pretty cool yeah like to actually be like you know this this worked this worked out well. Yeah. This is awesome. And there's more work coming. Oh, yeah. But uh, it's good to take a break. So, uh, no, it's awesome. definitely a good week. And I've got my these boys going to Purdue. I've got my Purdue shirt on, and I see you've got your uh, Ohio State shirt on. A little- you know, I just I just felt a little like, you know, Buckeyes pride today for some reason. So I have my Ohio State so we've got So uh, we've got some some new things to kid us about. The Big Ten. Whenever I get to check the schedule, I imagine <laughs> I don't know anything about college sports, so uh, I'll be uh, I'll be a good bandwagon jumper honor as good as anyone else. So uh, I say it's okay. I mean, it's pretty simple. Usually, I mean, most of the time, if Ohio State plays Purdue, they win. Football, so <laughs> I mean, it's all right. You know, it's just, it's it's okay. It's I all smell right. I smell a podcast wager coming. <laughs> Chris Newmarker, I will send you a dozen Dunkin' Donuts, and you'll have to give me. Walleye, <laughs> what do I get from you? I forget. What do you guys have? You have the pies. You have pies, right? Yeah, I can send you pies. Or you can send me something from uh, Caribou Coffee. And their pastries aren't so good. Maybe a pound of Caribou Coffee. Got or some really good coffee companies here. You yeah. know, maybe, maybe right. a nice craft beer. Maybe we can switch ah, off. You know? there now you go. we're talking. All right. You piqued my interest. There you go. You could head down, I'll head down to the UPS store and you know send you a few cans. <laughs> like <laughs> It's going to be fun. So, uh, okay. all right. Well, Chris Newmarker, I guess business-wise, we're working yes. on the Device Talks West agenda. We'll be opening up for registration next week. Um, oh, my gosh. The agenda's come together nicely. Details are forthcoming, but uh, registration will open up next week. We'll have the early bird special for uh, 300 bucks off, just like we did in Boston. So 395 versus 695 So I advise people not to wait. But, uh, of course, they want to wait for the agenda, I understand. Confirmed keynotes, absolutely 100% current firm keynotes uh, or Andy Pierce of Stryker. I have That's other good. keynotes at like 90% that I want to tell you who they are, but they haven't said, yes, absolutely. Sign me up, but they're they're committed. So those are it's coming. It's going to be good? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be, good. Be, it'll be a great couple of days. It'll be a lot of That's fun. awesome. Yep. So uh, fantastic. All right. So other than that, uh, no Device Talks Tuesdays next week. And uh, let's roll into the uh, new markers, newsmakers. Let's do it. The new markers, news makers. Well, number five on the list, we have uh, No Labs uh, unveiling their first generation a prototype of a, a non-invasive glucose monitor. 
Um, this uses their uh, BioRFD technology, which is like a spec spectroscopy, a spectroscopy. Oh, oh, I give up. <laughs> it's it's a technology that directs electromagnetic energy through a, a substance or, or material. So this this is like to you know ca catch a unique you know molecular uh, signature in order to uh, non invasively get a uh, glucose reading. Um, I mean, there are companies out there that have some of this tech mm -hmm. kind of out there already. They say they're like going to be driving toward doing a five ten, you know, an actual uh, FDA clearance of of the technology, and that you know what the, this first generation prototype can now be like used in research. So they can like start to do the you know the the high quality data collection they would need to actually get something cleared with the FDA. And I mean, it's worth noting. I mean, over the years, especially in the last decade, I mean, there there were times where you've seen these companies with like some kind of box or, you know, whatever that, you know, they say can, you know, non-invasively measure all this stuff. And, you know, you got to, you know, I, I you know, did it really do what they, you know, said it, said it was going to do? I mean, I, I mean, definitely, I think, you know, these studies are going to be kind of like the proof proof in the pudding like can this tech actually work so no labs this is k-n-o-w labs yes as a no as in to know thyself yes exactly cool stuff let's roll on to number four chris newmarker hey uh, number four on the list is uh medtronic they've got their uh, first chief technology and innovation officer that's great well you had yeah. interviewed neaton goyal from uh zimmer biomet yeah at a uh, really that, good interview yeah that, so do we have an understanding of what the uh, the purview of a chief technology and innovation officer will be? Well, they're going to, you know, they're, uh, you know, talking about this uh, new chief technology innovation officer, like leveraging his, uh, his extensive experience on technology development and execution across industries, you know, and uh, going to become a, a member of the executive committee. Um, they, uh, they tap somebody from Amazon. It's Ken Washington. He was their uh, VP and GM of consumer robotics. Uh, you know, like, like kind of one theme we've had is that like these, you know, there've been really big companies like Medtronic, Johnson Johnson, Siemens Health and Ears. You know, it's been challenging to compete with uh, Intuitive in the soft tissue robotic space, and Medtronic's still going with it with the Hugo robot. Um, but they, uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, they 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 chose. It's, I. I I would say it would say something that they chose a chief technology innovation officer who's got uh, robotics uh, expertise. Like I, I think that that sends a message. And you know, before that, he was a chief technology officer at a Ford Motor Company. That's an interesting connection. Which I mean, you know, cars. I don't. I I'd probably say that automobiles aren't as heavily regulated as say like airplanes, but there's still a lot of regulations around making of automobiles. I mean, they don't want. He also spent time at uh, Lockheed Martin. And numerous yep, there you go. He's roles. got the air, airplane experience. A lot so. of regulation there for sure. Yeah, you don't want something to break on an airplane. Chief Privacy Officer and VP of the Advanced Technology Center in Lockheed Martin Space Systems Company. So you know so, how to innovate in a highly regulated environment. So. Yeah. So this yeah. Medtronic is continuing to uh, draw our expertise from uh, other industries. We had Q Delara, the head of the diabetes group. Uh, on the podcast uh, just last week on the Medtronic, Tonic, Med, Medtronic Talks podcast just last week. And uh, she came to Medtronic from Honeywell, where she nice. was president and CEO of Honeywell Connected Enterprise. And she had made the case that, you know, just it's a it's an easy transition because it's all about just managing processes and, and, and tracking details. And, uh, it's a, it's a great bit of, uh, of, 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 of overlap in, in skill sets. So 
Uh, yeah. I know we continue, we traditionally look for other med tech industries, but as med tech becomes more tech, as much as yeah. med, you're going to draw from these other industries. And we also, of course, had uh, Martin Bueller from J&J at uh, Device Talks Boston giving a keynote about J&J's robotics program. And Martin Bueller famously was with Disney and been with Medtronic before that. And he was director of research at iRobot. So wow. he was with director of robotics at Boston Dynamics. He was involved, I think, in the spot program there. So once again, MedTech is uh, drawing uh, expertise from other industries, which I think is yeah. cool. I yeah, very great. cool. All right, Chris Newmarker, let's roll on to number three on the Newmarker's Newsmakers. Well, number three on the list, we've got uh, United Healthcare uh, announcing that they uh, plan to uh, cover uh, the uh, ever since uh, E3 uh, continuous glue close monitor from uh, Sensionics. I mean, United Healthcare, one of the largest health insurers in the United States, uh, you know, headquartered in uh, my neck of the woods, like around the Twin Cities here. Uh, but they, uh, but this, you know, this device, I mean, it was approved by the FDA in February, uh, implantable. 180 days requires just two sensor insertion and removal procedures a year. And then it's just going to be streaming, um, you know, glucose data to you. And, uh, you know, the company was describing this as like an important milestone, uh, saying that with United Healthcare, you know, covering it now, they said they're near, they're nearing all insured adults in the United States having access to this, uh, to their ever since uh, E3 CGM. Well, that's great news for, uh, for Sensionics. I mean, to get the FDA approval earlier this year and reimbursement now. And of course it's uh, great news for uh, folks who are using their devices. So yeah, once again, this field continues to explode. All right. Let's I mean, just to basically have a device that, you know, you can get it for half a year and like not really, uh, you know, have to, you know, you know, remember whether you're like putting in a new sensor or whatnot, you know, it's just there and giving you the data you need. Well, that's got to be a, a huge, uh, a huge load off the mind. You hear, hear about just how people with diabetes are forced to make hundreds of decisions a day and forced to yeah. really actively manage their, their disease. So to anything that can use this tech, that can use tech to take that load off, uh, just has to be, in addition to managing the disease, just has to be so much less stress. So. Great Absolutely. Stuff. All right. Well, let us uh, roll on to number two in the new markers newsmakers, Chris. Well, this this news was uh, you know from uh, last week, but you know since we were gone, we're you know doing kind of like a two week uh, newsmakers here. But uh, like uh, the number two on the list list was a uh, Hologic CEO uh, Stephen McMillan. He's going to chair the uh, board at uh, Illumina. He's going to be their non executive uh, board chair. And uh, oh, I, I put out a uh, post on a LinkedIn about it. Uh, you know, asking people what they thought this uh, meant for Illumina, and you know, kind of the responses I was getting was like, like they've got you know one of the <laughs> the best CEOs in med tech people were saying, you know, like, uh, now like, uh, you know, on their side, helping, uh, helping them with the business. Um, well, that's great news for, for Illumina. And of course we've seen, you know, some of this crossover for in med tech, uh, Mike Mahoney is on Baxter's board. So, uh, it's not unusual. I also see Edwards life sciences, CFO, Scott Ulum yep. is on a, a yep. new seat there at Illumina. So, uh, exactly. This comes after, uh, you know, a uh, you know the activist investor Carl Icahn's nominee uh, 
Andrew uh, Tano knocked out the previous board chair off the uh, off the board on on the shareholder in a shareholder vote. So there was definitely some uh, some some drama there, though. Uh, the, the Illumina CEO uh, Frank D'Souza uh, su survived another challenge, and, and that kind of uh, you know you know shareholder vote. And Illumina is still trying to uh, get final approval for the acquisition of Grail. And uh, it's, it's appealing the uh, FTC Commission's order to divest Grail. Uh, yeah. So lots going on there at Illumina. And uh, no doubt Stephen Pillen will provide a, a steady hand as uh, its new non-executive chair. All right, Chris Newmarker, what is number one on this week's Newmarker's Newsmakers? Number one on the list. Uh, this is, is uh, we have some tough news this week. It's uh, the FDA uh, you know, made public uh the uh, the warning letter that they've uh, you know sent to uh, sent to IRA that it was the you know subject of a you know SEC disclosure at you know at the uh, end of uh, end of end of May from IRA and um, you know it, it definitely uh, looks like they they have some um, issues to work through with the uh, with the FDA when it comes to their uh, ZOAT uh, ECG monitoring uh, system sure but you know definitely um, in this case it just uh, it looks like uh, they you know, like, uh, you know, talking with the iRhythm about uh, reporting requirements. Um, they're also saying that, you know, the, um, that they were marketing the ZOAT for, you know, unapproved indications, which mm -hmm. it would require another 510k. So, I mean, um, I mean, I, I was actually just, just looking at a, um, analyst note about all this from, uh, BTIG and, uh, you know, the, um, the analysts over there were, you know, noting that, you know, this doesn't in fact this doesn't affect the Zio XT or uh, the Zio monitor business. So I mean, they they they're still bullish on Iris portfolio, but uh, you know, they they said that there's definitely like uh, you know the, you know this they, they trimmed their valuation around what they said was uncertainty around the uh, you know the warning letter and the the Zio AT commercial outlook for now. You know, and so like hopefully we'll uh, yeah we'll hear more from Iris about how. How they're uh, you know looking to to work through this. All right. Well, a rough ending to the newsmakers, Chris. A new marker, but uh, thanks for putting uh, putting this list together. Yep. You know we do it every week, and if you want to get more uh, medtech news and insights, go to massdevice.com. And of course, you can also subscribe to the uh, Fast Five podcast. And Fast Five podcast, yep. exactly. Yeah. You can't wait for these wrap ups. At the end of the week, you can uh, hear Sean Hooley and Daniel Kirsch uh, give their daily updates on uh, the big news of the day. It's, 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 a, it's a great start to my day. I mean, Daniel and Sean are doing like a, like a fantastic job. Well, Ariel Sutton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to learn about Imperative Care. It's uh, one of those companies I keep hearing a bunch about and excited to learn about the neurovascular part of the business that you're leading. Maybe we can hit a little bit upon the vascular part if you can share a bit upon that and about the company's origins. But first, let's focus on your origins. Errol, how did you find your way to the medical device industry? Sure. Well, one of the things I've learned in med device is the, the path is never straight in the journey. And I would say uh, my entrance into med device follows that same tune. When I was little, I thought I, I would become a doctor. And when I hit my junior year in high school, my math teacher pulled me aside after class one day and recommended that I do an engineering program for women over the summer. Hmm. And uh, after that program, I decided I would major in materials engineering when I went to Brown. 
Wow. What was it about engineering that you uh, was a hit with you? Yeah. You know, what I learned through engineering is that it's really collaborative and the best solutions really come from a team working together. And I saw that in college too. I thought I would still become a doctor, even though I was majoring in engineering. Oh, interesting. And what was interesting is by junior year, I noticed that the collaboration amongst the team was much more enjoyable than the the cutthroat environment in, in pre-med. <laughs> so after I graduated, I uh, had a Fulbright fellowship and I spent a, a year in Israel and I was doing research on blood substitutes. So, you know, I was still following the medical, the medical path, but yeah. being in a lab, you know, all week long, ultimately I decided when I came back that I, I wanted to put my engineering practice to work. So I joined uh, Texas Instruments and uh, worked on a manufacturing floor, working on clad metals, putting my, my materials engineering background to work. I had a hard hat, steel-toed boots, nice, and uh, probably about as opposite from a clean room as, as you can get. <laughs> I did that for several years and, and decided to go back to business school. And uh, when I went to, to business school, you know, the companies come on campus and tell you about the different products that they're making and why you should come work for them. I remember when I heard uh, Ginger Graham and Art Collins and, you know, all the leaders of, of the med, med device companies, I was hooked. I'm curious if you still had the strong interest toward being a, a doctor and you were, or at least in, in medicine, you did the Fulbright Scholarship in Israel. Had you had a, your, your mind a biomedical engineering path at some point and did something take you off of that? Or how did you get to work at Texas Instruments and wear a hard hat? Yeah. So I went to Brown University for, for undergrad. And at the time, I think it's changed since since I graduated. But at the time, they didn't have a very big uh, biomedical engineering uh, program. Yeah, yeah. And so it had been recommended to me that, you know, staying true to, you know, one of the core engineering practices would be would be the best path. So mm -hmm. that's how I ended up choosing materials engineering. Sounds like your career would be uh, maybe likely would take a different path uh, if you were uh, headed to college uh, even ten years ago or five years ago with all absolutely. the absolutely yeah. absolutely and and just and to just share with you you know when I was an engineer there was only about twenty percent women yeah in my class um, which maybe I'm dating myself with that comment but you know today I think it's closer to to fifty fifty but you know at that time it it, it was still uh, heavily male dominated interesting. So, and you made the choice to go to business school. I'd like to just kind of delve into, into that for a moment because we're talking more broadly about the workforce situation in medtech where positions are being cut and engineers who are sort of looking to further their career. What was it about going to business school that was appealing to you? Did you know you wanted to get into something beyond engineering? Did you think it would support your engineering thing? I'm, I'm guessing you're going to tell me that you're still an engineer. You're just a, a non-practicing engineer. What was it about the decision to go to business school? And, and is that some advice that you'd give to an engineer now who's looking to sort of open career paths to themselves in the future? Yeah, before I answer that, by the way, I'm so far from engineering. I don't even use that word anymore. <laughs> 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 forbid somebody should ask me an engineering question. Is um, there an engineer in the plane? You, yeah. you just look around like... I'm hiding. Oh, I'm hiding. Here. <laughs> um, but you know what did encourage me to go back to business school is really two things. One is I did know I wanted to to change fields, you know, from it was really industrial products that I was working in. And, you know, I, I did still have that inkling for something in medical. So that drove me to to go back to to business school. 
And I also thought it would be really valuable to build some of the foundational skills. And, and that really has helped me accelerate my career, you know, post-business school, having a solid foundation in a lot of the business practices. And you meet a tremendous uh, number of people from different experiences, which is always really sort of eye-opening to hear about different industries that your your classmates have worked in and, and different experiences that they've had. Interesting. Yeah, that network that you get from business school is really the thing you walk away from, I think, that continues to pay dividends, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. You went to LifeScan at some point. Was that after business school? I'm seeing a two-year gap there in your LinkedIn profile. Is that the timing or did yes, that come Yes. So after? right after business school, I joined J&J. And that's also another opportunity to, to build a really strong educational background. Everybody knows J&J is well-known for their training. And I was at J&J for about a year and learned about the opportunity to, to go to an early stage company. And one of the things that I do think is incredibly valuable early in your career is to have the experience of working for a larger company and a smaller company, because mm-hmm. both are great, but each person you know, has different sort of interests and, and fits better, I think, in, in one size versus another. So when I went to a smaller company, I love the you know jump in head first and try and do a little bit of everything. And there's not really a lot of training. You, you, it's more learn, learn on the job. And uh, I really loved my my experience at Fox Hollow because I, I went say. in with that engineering background with the focus on upstream and left with a lot of experience in, in the downstream. So what was that uh, conversation like? I don't know who you would talk about your career then back then, but you're at, again, you're at J&J, you know, if you stay there for the most part, you've got a, you've got a good path, but there's this company, Fox Hollow, which obviously had a lot of buzz there. And I don't know when you joined the company, but what convinced you to take a leap from the reasonably safe environs of a larger company to join the startup? Was it just to get more exposure or, or did you, did you see, were you pursuing something else? Yeah. You know, I went and I interviewed for, for the job and I um, met Leslie Trigg, uh, who you've spoken with. (laughs) Big fan. She's electric, right? So I think the opportunity that she presented for how this could really change my career trajectory and you know, when I started hearing about the atherectomy market and the ability to really save patients' legs, and I'll never forget, you know, in my my first week on the job, you know, coming from J&J, you know, my first question is, where's the market research report? And Leslie says, you don't want to read the market research report. The market doesn't even exist. In market <laughs> research report. <laughs> so, you know, we really built the market at, at Fox Hollow. And one of the themes of the different companies that I've gone to is it's really always just been about growing the technology and really helping more patients. Mm -hmm. And I've been blessed with really fantastic technologies and more importantly, fantastic teams, because I think you can have a mediocre technology that can really take off with the appropriate training. And I've seen great technologies that really don't go very far without without the right team to, to help physicians. That's interesting. And looking at your next stop, well, you were part of the, the merger with EV3, your director of marketing there, but then you went to Access Closure and uh, your path sort of personifies uh, conversations I've had lately with folks about choosing the next place to work, like finding a place to work where there's someone there who can 
sort of like Leslie did, I'm sure for you and like the CEO was Fred Krishavi CEO of Access yes, Closure. He was. Yeah. I mean, what that do you do? You, do you see that as an opportunity? Like I got to, I need to work with this person because I just know if I connect and do a good job with this person, that this is uh, this is someone you want to be aligned with. Yeah. Interestingly, I was, I was early enough in my career that I'm not sure I had that full realization. Yeah. I do remember meeting Fred and Fred's a really special person. You know, he he's an incredible businessman, but more importantly, he's actually an incredible human being. He really cares about people. And you feel that when you talk to him. So I remember when I first sat down with him and, you know, he said, there's really two focuses in, in my life, my work and my family. And I was just, you know, starting my family at the time. And, and that just really resonated for me. And, uh, you know, access closure for me was an opportunity to go even earlier stage. So when I joined Fox Hollow, they had just gone public. Um, oh, okay. were about 30 million. And when I joined access closure, the product had just launched. So that was a amazing opportunity. And now with at imperative care, when I joined, was pre-launched. So progressively, I've started with companies early and earlier and really had the opportunity to shape the strategy and, and shape that launch. Interesting. Can you learn what you need to learn without going through that process? If you had jumped to another company that had already launched a product and had $30 million in sales, do you think you'd be able to understand what it is to go even earlier than that to launch a product? Or do you really need to kind of be in the trenches of that to, to, and experience it to learn everything you need to learn about just starting out, just launching a product? I definitely think there's pieces that you leverage from your previous experiences. And I think it's one of the things that I've noticed, even when you're hiring team members, right? The more sort of different experiences that an individual has, they can leverage and they can they can pull from. And it really shapes, right? Their actions and, you know, and the creativity. So mm-hmm. do I think you need it? No, but I think each of these different experiences help shape us. Interesting. I appreciate your indulging me. My <laughs> my questions. <laughs> I find this career stuff really interesting. So access closure to, to Cardinal Health is that part of the acquisition? That was an acquisition. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So what was your thinking there? Did you have the small company bug? You're like, I'll do this for now, but I know where I'm going. Or did you say, let's give the big company a try again and see where that goes? Yeah. Well, the last big company I had been at was Johnson and Johnson, yep. right? As a associate product manager. So I thought, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to you know be at a VP level in a large company and really understand how do the bigger companies think about acquisitions and growth and really sit on the other side of the table. Sure. Cardinal's health strategy at the time was to build out a interventional business. So they started with vascular closure by acquiring access closure. But then there was a decision made to really look whether we were going to build our own portfolio or whether we were going to acquire a portfolio. And so I was instrumental in that process in doing that analysis and ultimately making the decision to acquire Cordis to bring in to bring in that portfolio. So, you know, I did that for a couple of years, but then, you know, Fred reached out uh, and, uh, you know, when the CEO of not CEO, but, you know, Fred has a in- incubator where he's started 23 companies. And when he tells you he's so excited, he can't sleep because of the company that he's starting, you know, it, it's a little <laughs> hard to 
<laughs> to not want to follow. Yeah, it's hard, hard not to trust those instincts, right? Yeah. Like, this is a person who knows what, what he's talking about. And at that point in my career, by the way, it was also time, right? I, I recognized, you know, the importance of really working with people that you want to be working with, that you care about and they care about you. Absolutely. No, that's that's essential to go to work and, and know every day that you're part of something positive that makes all the difference, especially to your point when you're spending time away from your, your family, which is uh, the other priority. So with Imperative Care, let's talk a bit about the company. Where was Imperative Care when you joined, which from what I have here was 2016. Was it still in the very early stages? Yeah, it was literally a drawing on a napkin. Um, <laughs> I sat down with Don't Greg. get earlier than that. That's a... <laughs> um, which is what was so exciting to me, right? Like this was a, a, a opportunity to really work with Fred and 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 shape this. And the company was really co-founded by you know Fred, who's a serial entrepreneur, but also Nick Hopkins, who's a, a luminary in in the neurointerventional space. And it started with this idea that you could take a larger catheter uh, deeper in the brain to be closer to the clot, to, mm. to remove the, the clot for ischemic stroke. And, um, you know, nobody had been able to do that. It's a, an analogy to maybe think about is, you know, if you're playing basketball, the probability of hitting the hoop, if you're shooting midcourt versus, you know, doing a layup you know, our catheter was essentially, is essentially, you know, creating the layup so that you can, you can easily remove that clot. Interesting. So it started essentially with accessing the clot, but it's really um, evolved quite quickly into how do we create more access for patients? And so putting the patient at the center, thinking about, you know, the onset of stroke all the way through to the recovery of stroke. And, Unfortunately, today, only one in, in five patients are being treated for a, a large a large vessel occlusion stroke. And, you know, that's just unacceptable. You know, our technology, a lot of the clinical data that's evolving in the space right now, there's some recent data that has expanded the, the patient population that can be treated. That'll probably take us from one in five, you know, to two in five. Mm -hmm. The real game changer here is how do we get this to four and five? And so, you know, Fred and Nick really recognize that by not only by us having, you know, game changing devices, but thinking about how we can open up that access for patients, expanded the vision to include things like robotics and detection, and then also, you know, helping out patients who haven't achieved the best outcome through the procedure, really helping them through the recovery process as well. So it's a really broad vision. What I love about it is, you know, the big companies have tried to achieve growth by, you know, they they sort of reach, you know, a slowing with their current portfolio, and then they go out and either acquire or figure out, you know, expansion. And imperative care is really doing this from the beginning. From the beginning, it was a built for purpose with this vision to think more expansively about bringing more care to more patients. I want to get into the technology in a moment, but I like to just drill down on the, on the one in five. For some reason, I always thought the, the one in five number was tied more toward people weren't getting to a point where they could be treated in time to get treatment. Is that the bigger hurdle or is the tall hurdle not having the technology to get to the clots and, and treat them safely? It's actually a combination of okay. the time as well as the access mm -hmm. to to the patient. So about close to 80 million Americans live farther than 20 miles from a hospital that can perform these procedures. 
So you have, you know, time is brain in stroke. And so that, that time is incredibly important, but also getting a patient to a hospital where they can be treated, you know, by a physician who is well-trained in, in these techniques and the technology is incredibly important. So, you know, our inter, the stroke business that I'm leading is very much focused on the intervention itself and shortening time. But that's minutes, whereas the access for the patients is hours. Interesting. So talk a bit about your technology in your approach. You have some cool videos on the website. People can check it out and we'll have the link in the show notes. But what is noticeably different if someone looking at the video from imperative care's approach to some of the other approaches out there? Sure. So imperative care, similarly to how we looked at the vision of the company in a more systematic approach, you know, putting the patient at the center and thinking about the continuum of care, we've done that similarly for the interventional piece. So we really looked at this as access all the way through to clock capture to create a system. You know, we didn't just come out with a single catheter. And so there's really three aspects that we've innovated. The first is access. So I spoke about that with the larger bore catheter that the physicians are able to start the procedure to get closer to the clot. We call that intracranial access. Prior to our Zoom 88 access catheter, physicians were only really reaching the distal cervical, which is in the neck. Mm-hmm. And now they're actually able to go inside the brain oh, wow. uh, with, our, with our Zoom 88 The second piece is we developed a series of catheters that are different sizes for the different vessels in the brain. So as you go further and further in the brain, the vessels become smaller. So we developed four different sized catheters and they're all shaped differently than all the other catheters on the market. So most of the catheters have a flat tip, not most, all of the other catheters have a flat tip. And our Zoom catheter has a um, 60 degree angle. We call it our TRX tip. Hmm. And that gives you more surface area so that the physicians can achieve what we call asymmetric clot engagement. So there's two pieces to getting the clot out of the brain. One is you have to get there with the catheter, but then the second is the catheter actually has to be able to, to remove that clot. So with this tip that we have, we're seeing improved ability for the physicians to to actually engage that clot and ultimately remove it. And then the third aspect that we innovated is the clot capture itself. Mm -hmm. So once the physician gets the catheter to the clot, they have a pump that sits outside that actually literally vacuum, it's almost like a vacuum cleaner, it literally vacuums a clot out out of the brain. And one of the innovations that we developed is called the Zoom pod. And so right outside of the patient's body is a little filter. So when the clot comes out of the body, the physician immediately sees, they know that they've treated the patient and they're able mm-hmm. to turn off that pump and, uh, you know, and, and feel that, that, that success of knowing that they've removed that clot. Interesting. So the catheters of the different sizes, and if I'm looking at the video correctly, or was earlier they fit inside of each other. So it's kind of like a telescoping effect of as the vessel gets narrower, the narrower catheter comes out to extend. Exactly. The reach. Okay. Exactly. But the, the goal, you know, with these devices is to continue to get and make these procedures easier and easier. So if we can do this with fewer devices, you know, it's going to make it easier for the, for the physicians to maneuver the devices and it'll make the procedure faster. And just so I understand the tip part, it would seem from your explanation, the flat tip, you're getting at the clot, 
at its center where with your 360, you're kind of getting it from the edges and, and pulling it out more evenly. Is that the benefit? Exactly. Now? And when you watch it on, on a video with the flat tip, the clot almost mushrooms mm. around the, the catheter. And with the TRX tip, it literally almost folds into the, the catheter. So okay. it does make a difference. Interesting. So you're in the effort to make it easier, I imagine you're, you're making it easier for those folks who are currently doing procedures. Removing these clots requires a great deal of skill that not that many people don't have. I imagine the interventionists don't have, or at least it's something that is challenging. Is your your hope that by developing an easier system that more interventionists, more doctors will be able to perform these procedures. Therefore, you're sort of expanding the options for for treatment. Well, let me talk a little bit just about the actual accessing of the clot. So we talked about how the vessels get smaller and smaller, but what we didn't talk about is the, the tortuosity of these vessels. So these vessels can have 360 loops, 180 turns, often all of the above. And the sicker the patients, often the more tortuosity that you see in the vessel uh, structure. So I would say in some ways, you know, it's it's a beyond a, a skill issue, right? There, there's just a complexity in the anatomy. And so our goal is how can we develop these catheters that they're soft enough to navigate these this difficult tortuosity, but have the stiffness in the proximal so that the physician can push the catheters at the same time. So it's that complexity that makes these catheters really, really difficult both to develop as well as manufacture. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk a bit about the business. So you're, you were recently promoted your senior vice president of the, the neurovascular business, correct? A general manager. General manager. Apologize. So structurally for the, for the company, what does that mean in terms of your, your focus? Before it, it seemed as your portfolio was under sort of one, one business, but now imperative care is going to target neurovascular and, and vascular differently. Is that is that what unfolding here? Yeah. So it's really the evolution of the company. You know, when we were talking about the vision, you know, it did start with our interventional stroke business and we needed to be focused, right? We only had a small team. So while we wanted to go after and attack robotics and, you know, digital health, you know, we only had a small team. So we we did really need to focus. And what's evolved, you know, over the past several years is that, you know, in our stroke business, we've now treated over 25,000 patients, one in three aspiration catheters, you know, amongst a, a sea of, of large players. Um, one in three of, of catheters being pulled is an, is an imperative care Zoom catheter. Hmm. And so with that, you know, success that we've seen in the interventional business, it's allowed us now to really begin to expand our other businesses. So the success that we were seeing with thrombectomy in the brain drove us to really say, well, let's take these same features, which I described to you and, and see the success that we can also have in patients with DVT and, and PE. And it also allowed us to expand our focus on the broader continuum of care for stroke. So the way the company is structured now is that we have, you know, our two commercial businesses of our stroke business and our uh, vascular business. It's really more earlier stage programs when it comes to the robotics and and the digital health. Interesting. Yeah. And thank you. I was going to correct myself. The general manager of the stroke business, which gives you a broader charter than neurovascular, I would think. How do you approach the growth of, of this stroke business? Is it focusing on this one product or this one system? 
And I do want to get into the robotic stuff because you mentioned that twice and that's very exciting. How do you see this business growing? Are you developing materials or products internally? Are you acquiring other businesses that sort of maybe, or other products that maybe complement what you're doing? What do you see like the future? What does the future look like for the stroke business? Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I believe imperative care has has had such great success is we really do start with the clinical need, Tom, and really trying to collaborate closely with the physicians to understand, you know, what challenges that they're facing. And one of the things that we discovered early on for our stroke business is, you know, the physicians want to be able to expect that they're going to get full reperfusion in the brain in as short time as possible. So it sounds like you went to our website, but we often talk about it as ticky three in 10 minutes. We want the physicians to be able to wake up at 2 a.m. and expect that they'll be able to, you know, go into the hospital, remove that clot to achieve, you know, full reperfusion or ticky three, do that in in 10 minutes, and then, you know, get back home and and get back to bed. Hmm. That's not going to happen on every case, but if we can develop it, that that becomes the expectation that's a huge advance advancement for this space. So all of the different technologies that we've been working on and developing have really been a focus towards how do we change that expectation for physicians. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer. And so the future technologies that we're looking at are continuing to strive towards that goal of the Tiki 3 in 10 minutes. And we've really developed internally the capability with our R&D team that we have this rapid iteration. So we get this feedback from the physicians, we iterate the product quickly, and then we're able to get a new generation. So a lot of our early technologies, we're already on you know, third, fourth generation. And that partnership with the physicians and the physicians seeing you know, their feedback turn into you know, products that are in their hands has been really powerful. Interesting. Again, you mentioned robotics a couple of times. Is, do you have a robotics program internally that you're developing? Do you see an external application or, or company that you may be partnering with, or maybe you've already done my research? Where are you at with that? Yeah, so we are we have a program we are developing internally. And if you look at a lot of the robotics programs out there, they're really looking at how do you develop a robot, right? And then they're looking at using others' instrumentation where we really see the success for imperative care is we have catheters that are becoming the standard of care, right? With, with one and three being pulled and, you know, we're continuing to innovate. So we have the access to the tools that are being used in these procedures and now have the advantage of really being able to take that same system approach that we used for removing the clot. And now we can apply that same system approach to how do we create a robot and catheter technology combined system that will allow more patients to be treated. Because, you know, we talked about that one in five are being treated today. We see that advancing to to two and five with our technology with this robotic solution of changing the ability for patients to get that access. We believe we'll get this to to four and five patients being treated. Wow. So do you have a, a, and it's interesting, I see the parallels to, I know, work being done in the lung space. And it would seem like the accessing the outer part of the lung would be very similar to accessing the brain. It's tortuous and it's winding. What does your internal program look like at this point? Do you have a team of engineers working on it? Is it a large team, a small team? Can you give us any details on it? Yeah. So we're, we do have a good sized team that that is working on this program. We've really been able to attract 
developers who have worked on other robotic platforms. And so the beauty of this team is that we're combining the expertise of those who know stroke well um, and those who have worked on other, you know, med device robotic platforms to really be able to bring together and marry the best of the the both worlds, because we do really believe that that this is the future. Fantastic. Well, this is exciting stuff, and there's uh, there's stuff that I'm learning about that I wasn't anticipating. Well, this is great. I just want to follow up on two more points. You you mentioned earlier on how you're working with with surgeons. Um, clearly, that's something that's done a lot in the medical device industry. Do you feel that your cooperation, your collaboration is is different or more intense perhaps than elsewhere? How, how are you handling that? Yeah, well, the, you know, as I mentioned, Nick Hopkins was one of our co-founders, right? So there was from really day one, a strong connection established, you know, with the medical community. And, you know, Nick brought along several other physicians that have been part of our, what we call founding clinical advisors, and you know now that we're on the market we've we've developed even an even broader set of physicians you know that we partner with and what we hear from from physicians is that you know the partnership with imperative care is really different and i think it has to do with this rapid iteration process that we've set up we had a physician visiting just about a month ago and he said you know i often give companies feedback on the products but it's very rare that i actually see that feedback come to fruition. Oh, interesting. And what I really find special about imperative care is that I provide that feedback and I'm blown away that, you know, six months later, I have a, a new product in my hand that has integrated some of those changes. So, you know, that's something that we really value and we want to continue to preserve, you know, as the company grows. Great. And final question, again, you, you mentioned surgical, you mentioned robotics. The other thing, thing you said was, was digital health, which is uh, obviously another hot space. Off and on hot space, but anyway, how, how does that fit into uh, imperative care strategy? What do you have available there? Yeah, well, we've been talking about the focus on on patient outcomes, but not everybody does have you know an excellent outcome, and so there are not a lot of solutions today for patients who are leaving the hospital. And if you look at the statistics, about fifty percent of stroke patients are re- readmitted to the hospital within the the first year. So you know that's a staggering number. There's a real opportunity to to help the patients after they're discharged. And so we have a program called Can Do. The Can Do is like patients can do or mm-hmm. that motivation or belief, you know, oftentimes if folks have are are leaving the hospital with disability, you know, there can be a feeling of can't do. And we would we want to be able to change that. So our can do program marries a nurse navigator with the patient for the first 90 days. Uh, and we're really helping the patient navigate their care so that they can improve their outcome in that initial period after experiencing the stroke. Wow. I mean, how do you sort of incorporate that into a, into a broader device company framework? It's a different type of business. It is a different type of business. And, and it goes back to the earlier comments I was making about how this company was really built to last from the beginning, right? The, this vision of what we're, what we're trying to create. And as a result, we're being flexible with our structure. So um, recently, actually, the the can-do business was spun out because digital health operates differently than than med device. So we're structuring the company in a way that allows all of these different efforts to really accelerate and grow the bigger vision. Fantastic. Well, I've, I've learned a ton, both about your career, but also imperative care. Both really excellent topics, Ariel. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Such a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. 
All right, Chris Newmarker, that is a wrap. How can folks find you out there in social media land? You can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, like a new marker. All right. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Once again, we'd like you to uh, subscribe. Well, I'm sorry, Chris. Once again, we'd like people to... Like, follow, subscribe. That's right. Like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network. You'll receive future episodes of the Device Talks weekly podcast, Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks. And uh, next week, we're hoping to roll out. We will roll out Abbott Talks. So we've got a whole new slew of great news coming from uh, those aforementioned companies. So uh, make sure you do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network and uh, make sure you share this podcast on LinkedIn. And when you do connect with Chris Newmarker, with Mass Device, with Device Talks, with myself, we want to be part of uh, of that conversation. And uh, we'd love for more people to uh, to find the podcast. So we really do appreciate it when, when you share. So, uh, all right. Other than that, we're working on the agenda for Device Talks West. It's happening October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, registration opens up next week, and we'll be posting details on the agenda over the coming weeks. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. Go to west.devicetalks.com for more information on that, or you can just go to devicetalks.com and follow the links, and you'll get there that way as well. And while you're there, check out some very cool podcasts and uh, Device Talks Tuesdays. Lots of great Device Talks Tuesdays coming up. All right, Chris. Great job. Thanks again. Good times. Enjoy the summer, man. Like, pool season is here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to start our grill. And I, I, smoked, uh, really? I smoked a couple of briskets for my boy's graduation Aww. party. Not too shabby, if I say it myself. It was, uh, it was darned tasty. I uh, I was at a uh, Twins game two weeks ago, and I oh caught, got some like a grilled, uh, which I mean I I know all our Cleveland co- colleagues, our parent companies based in Cleveland, but you know it was it was it was nice watching the Twins beat the Guardians, you know, one to zero, <laughs> and had a nice grilled uh, Karmachuk's sausage. Makes me think I need to like drive over to Northeast Minneapolis and get some more of those because you know, those, uh, those are pretty tasty. You got a lovely baseball field the there. Target Field's a nice little place to see a game. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right, Chris Newmarker. Thanks again. And thanks everyone for joining us on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Take care, everybody.